Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Asking the very important question, what does it mean to be good ancestors? This is the second part of a two-part episode with my friend Meow Ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow, Sydney-based biohacker and someone that Hakim Bey might have called a poetic terrorist, someone who believes that art's prime function should be to disturb us, to provoke us, to inspire us out of our slumber. And that perspective makes a lot of sense if we recast the meaning of our individual lives as a sort of gritty prequel to the post-singularity creative metaverse as it seems Meow does. I love this guy. He's brilliant. He's as argumentative as he is brilliant. And we pick up right in the middle of a debate about nuclear energy to almost immediately pivot into an argument about the function of modern art, the relevance of Damien Hirst, and whether we're all just sitting around fapping until a godlike AI awakens and recruits us all into its mystery. Highly recommend you go back and listen to part one of this conversation, episode 35. But before we dive into this one, I just want to take a moment to thank every one of you who has supported this show and its cloud of related creative works on patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. I told someone the other day that this podcast was for an unborn audience of digital archaeologists. And they bitch slapped me with the truth, which is that I have an audience, and that audience is you. And whether you're supporting this show financially, or just donating your precious attention to soaking up these conversations, you truly are the reason that I do this, and I love you, even if I don't know you. And if I don't know you, then why don't you join the Facebook group and introduce yourself that's also a great place to post recommendations if you have any suggested guests or topics you'd like explored on the show. Or you can just email me, futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com with your suggestions. I read everything. I actually respond to everything, and I would love to hear from you. One last little announcement is that I am heading out on the road again this month. I will be speaking as well as playing music at both the Oregon Global Eclipse Gathering and at Burning Man Festival. If you're going to be at either of those events, drop me a line and let me know. I'd love to see you. I'll be recording podcasts out there, playing music for yoga, this kind of stuff, the stuff you're, you're hearing now, what I call cyber acoustic guitar, which embeds the human and string instrument into the digital ecosystem of electronic effects so if you're at oregon eclipse or burning man let's hang out and maybe i'll even get to serenade you with some music of the complex dynamic fluid improvisational modality <laughs> anyway again thanks for listening i love you and i hope that you enjoy the second part of this conversation with meow ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow. How do we move out of like an ownership model in art, life, and relationship 
to mm. a license and permission access based model. Mm. Right. Cause this is ultimately, it's the same thing. It's like, we saw this with Spotify, you know, like yeah. people are actually cool with just having it whenever they, they want. If it's a non-zero sum resource, like where Definitely. me having it means that you don't. And this is where it gets tricky with, human relationships, although that's, you know, that's taken it a little too far in, into that direction in terms of like, you know, you can only spend, you know, you can, you have to delegate cer a certain amount of time based on the expectations of culture to child rearing in hunter gatherer society. It was two years because at that point you're, you have a single cohesive tribal unit in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. It was 20 plus years because that's how yeah. long it takes to raise a child when you're yeah. living behind the suburban white picket fence membrane and so maybe maybe in the sort of I, I think that you and I and, and a lot of people in our generation are a lot more comfortable with the idea of cooperative housing and, and communal Definitely. living and therefore we might see the child rearing age responsibility number drop back down again on that note it's about um, we've grown up with divorce right because this is a shift back towards that direction. So we understand relationships don't ha have to last forever for them to be successful. And what I, and I think this, the, the, the grand theme that we're seeing here is how do we leverage existing systems to move back into a system that works better? People might have wanted to spend their life with someone when they were 20 years old, but not when they were 40 years old. So they're, they're, they're leveraging systems there to be able to raise a kid and move back into a situation where they're in a state, they're, they're happier. We're seeing currencies like Ripple, which is a cryptocurrency, which is a centralized cryptocurrency, right? So it's not the same decentralized model where everyone can just chuck in and, and go on that thing. Uh, so go on the go on the blockchain and compute it all. It has super fast exchange times and it's centralized. So it's basically like a bank for crypto. And this is the system that enables the ordinary person to be able to access these because they have confidence in it. So we're leveraging these existing systems to move into it. And I'm saying nuclear is that for the power system, which we're leveraging as a, a low carbon solution to move into a better one so in all these things we're being pragmatic we're saying how do we convince the general population that this is a good idea and it's by taking a system that's very very different that arbuck means the fuller kind of create a system that makes the previous one obsolete but it's creating a system in between that allows people to transition without that it's, it's a stopgap that allows them to realize that it's not so different that they won't take it on so i, I think that that's the kind of theme here so in relationships, the segueing out of fossil fuels with nuclear technology would be like akin to having two families in two different states as a solution to monogamy or something. Like I'm trying, it's like, yeah, it just well, seems honestly, like, what is it? The nuclear it, option here is in that, in that undesirable, model, right? But it's... Well, in, in this system, it's actually a hierarchical poly relationship. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's well, taking the things that you like from a traditional relationship. A prostitution, possibly. Yeah. So, so basically, it's saying, like, what do I like about traditional relationships? And what, what do I like about poly, polyamorous relationships? How do I fuse them together to be a, a way that's a pathway through to, say, relationship anarchy. So, so you're, you're, you're finding the pragmatic solution with traditional social values and then incorporating the newer ones. So you still have a, like, I still have a stable lifestyle in a normal kind of monogamous way. Like, I have my girlfriend that I live with and we have lots of friends that we have relationships or sex with. 
when I go to a family gathering, I would predominantly take my primary partner. Unless I was seeing a partner for a very long time, in which case they become a primary pretty much too, in which case I might take either. So if someone invited me out for dinner and they said, bring your girlfriend, I'll say, which one? <laughs> and, then say, and, and then they'll laugh a bit and then, then I'll be like, no, I'm serious. Should I bring my, my primary partner or is it okay if I bring someone that I'm kind of just seeing and we're just kind of like forming something? And then they'll say, oh, well, I never really thought about that. And basically you're introducing them to the concept slowly and I'll probably bring my primary partner. But the thing is, it opened up a conversation with them where they realize that not all relationships are as they expect. And this mm. is that pragmatic way of getting everyone to accept polyamory, right? If you just say relationship anarchy to them, you're like, I have 15 girlfriends. How many should I bring? It'll freak them the fuck out. Whereas if you show them this model, it's it's more digestible. And, and this is this kind of... So nuclear technology is that like smoking hot stripper with borderline personality disorder or something. I hope so. That's a- <laughs> the, problem, the problem is though, she has to have a drug habit too because she has to be, be like <laughs> not someone you can easily take along to a dinner party and she has to be primary. But then again, right? then again, you know, I think it's, it's sort of arguable that if we're married to fossil fuels that the spouse is the one with the substance abuse issue. Definitely. Okay, so before this gets just totally lunatic, and and since you know we're we're also kind of like we're right there next to riffing on painting everything black with with solar panels. Uh, yeah, I really want to get into Vanta Black and Vanta Pink. Yeah, because we gotta because again this is this is an issue of ownership. I was just looking up the story that you yeah. were you know you're referencing, um, and we talked about this at Earth Frequency too a little bit at your camp. Yeah. this issue of making a color your intellectual property as a work of yeah. art and what a fucking boner move that is. And then now there's this, I'm looking at this and there's this whole back and forth. There's this whole sort yeah. of war between artists. That's like about the fact that you can no, you can't. Yes, you can own a color. So yeah. Is, is, is Vanta black a color? So Vanta black folks is, the blackest pigment ever created it it absorbs like 99.98 percent of light Uh, it was invented for calibrating military and astronomic optics so it's the black against which the sky is compared and this dude anish kapoor anish kapoor has exclusive rights to vanta black like actually got the the people who made Vanta Black to give him, which I think was a bad move on their part. Yeah, the, was, they they actually because they created the color, they have you know some sort of uh, monopoly on who gets to use it. Like that's that's what you know. Like I said, well, I'm reading Common as Air by Lewis Hyde, and he talks about copyright. There's a strong strain of argument in in history that copyright, trademark, etc., are best understood through the framing of it being a temporary monopoly. So this dude, Anish Kapoor, has legally purchased a monopoly to the blackest black. Has he purchased the color? That's what I'm saying, right? He's purchased the technology. Well, he's patented, and and this is very important, he's patented the use of this technology in art. Now, that on its own is a fucking dick move because the whole of (laughs) art is to try and shake up the fucking establishment, right? So one of the best artists out there right now is making Vanna Black themselves because 
all scientific papers are published, right? So the technique is made somewhere and some artist is going to make a fucking sculpture inventor black and say to Anish Kapoor, fucking sue me, cunt, right? <laughs> and then when that happens, that artwork will become art because art is ideas. Art is ideas driven, not skills or talent driven, right? So that was a big move that happened in the Renaissance and, and then into like, you know, um, fucking uh, surrealism, all that shit. And then it culminated in data and data like, Marcel Duchamp's fucking fountain was like, that's art. And he put a fucking urinal up on display. And that was when art transformed and it was freed, right? It was a singularity in art where it said anything past this point can be whatever it is. You can take a shit on a fucking piece of pavement and call it art. And it's art. And that's what Damien Hirst does for a living. It's exactly right. And I love Damien Hirst because he fucking gets art, right? Like, and a lot of people fucking, a lot of my mates that are artists hate him. And I'm like, no, I totally hate that guy. Really, man? Oh my God. But it's because I'm with Alain de Baton on, I believe that art, that good art, it's okay. We've, we've already established that anything can be art. Good art. No, no, no. I am because, because I'm an integral artist. So integral, integral art accepts that there are, multiple perspectives on this there are multiple hermeneutic matrices within which one can evaluate the normative and aesthetic and developmental claims and that you know that no one basically no one has the monopoly on the correct opinion right so yeah so you still get to believe that damien hurst is a good artist but i'm with elaine de baton that i believe that art in its petulant adolescent repetitious insistence on art having no meaning that modern art has thrown its own baby out with the bathwater, which is that art serves a communicative function and that art in like JF Martel episode 18 of this podcast, he wrote a book called reclaiming art in the age of artifice where he, his distinction is that there's pornographic or pedantic or allegorical or uh you know marketing art which he calls artifice which is art that's designed to get you to do something and then there's art which is art in the sense that it is uh it it induces a state of aesthetic arrest it creates a an experience, a, t- a temporary experience of the transcendent. It is a window into the yeah. numinous. And so like on those categories, Elaine de Baton's point is that we need to reemphasize the capacity of art as a didactic instrument, as a way of opening people up yeah. to a sense of the transcendent that we have lost in abandoning the religious traditions like that, that basically like we can have, I think, where is it? Denmark that has the secular church that just like people get together and they share in all the benefits of church, but they don't foster a set of uh, untestable religious beliefs, you know? And I think that there's something in that, that it's like, I mean, that's, that's a total tangent, but, but the point is it's like, there's totally plenty of room for like ironic hipster bullshit in this world but like let's not let's not mistake the the moment of rebellion that a person goes through in adolescence for you know the high water mark of adult development and like let's not mistake modern art for the greatest thing that art is capable of being 
I'm, I'm going to like completely disagree with half of what you said and completely agree with the other half. So, okay. so like, let's just say, um, this, this, this sense of transcendence you get when you hit art, right? My objection to art post Duchamp is that at that point, art became less accessible to the ordinary person. This is a fucking huge thing, right? Which is that if you understand art, you get more out of art after that point. And before that point, you got more out of it by just being an ordinary person. Like you could get as much out of it as a critic. So like we look at Renaissance paintings. Now, most Renaissance paintings, we're just going to say, are as much craft as they are art. Mm -hmm. That the skill was equal to the transcendent experience you got from it. But, but, you know, if we go back to like all the way back to Michelangelo's times, for example, art was a craft and Michelangelo changed that, right? Like he said, no, art is more than just a craft. It's a profession. It's something that transcends craft. So at what, at what point now does art, illustration, craft all differ from each other? And, and this, this is where I'm saying Damien, Damien Hirst is a fucking artist, man, but he's, an art, he's as extreme an artist as the most extreme craft person is. So you may say a craft person, a person who sits there and makes chain mail, right, mm. in a new reimagined remixed way that transcends what it would have been when it was made traditionally is art. But it's still craft, right? Because a, a huge proportion of it is the skill that's put in. Now, Damien Hurst's work probably isn't made, even made by him, right? It's probably it's not, commissioned. Right. Yeah. yeah, of course. But, but that's not what it's about. it's about. It's about the ideas that drive it. And that makes it exclusive and elite. So that only the people who are in this elite club can understand the ideas that drive the creation of his artwork. Now, to those people, it is the most transcendent experience and that's why it's interesting, right? That's why it's art. But it doesn't, it's not craft, right? And what my understanding of your argument is is that art should be both art and craft, that it should challenge the person to make it. And this goes into the alchemical realms and my one of my good, good mates is a person who, like he and I both classify ourselves alchemists. Mm-hmm. And his artwork is inherently scientific and he tries and understands science through art. His Scientific skill is low. I would say the craft in this case is, is there's there's like a minimum requisite mastery of one's medium in order to say something as an effective artistic statement. But it's not like I don't know that I would put everything on the the art and craft spectrum. Well, like that. let's just say I make a macaroni fucking photo frame, right? Yeah, yeah. And I put glue some macaroni to a fucking photo frame. I spray paint it gold and I put a photo inside it. Uh huh. What about if I put Mussolini in that photo frame, right? And then I frame it with the ideas of everything that led to me being able to buy a mass-produced pasta really cheaply. That all of a sudden that becomes more interesting, right? Right. But, what but, about if I but had- your medium in this case is the rhetorical framing of that artifact. You have to include yeah. – again, this is sort of like getting back to that like – are angels mortal in some sense. It's like you have to right. include the immaterial framing of that thing. And I think that that's the, that's the main point of modern art and like postmodern art criticism, which I think is really valid, which is yeah. that, you know, if you're looking at the anatomy and behavior, the internal experience of art, the appreciation for the systems within which uh, an individual artifact is expressed, and then also the framing of 
like semiotic and semantic understanding, then you have the critical perspective on art is a full 25% of what determines whether it's art or not. Yeah, like if, if you don't know who Mussolini is, that artwork makes no sense, right? But what about if I made a pasta frame that was the most beautiful pasta frame you've ever seen? I got fucking rigatoni, I got penne, I got fucking <laughs> elbows, right? I make some fucking hectic fractal mandala and I put Alex Gray at the center. Like it may be beautiful, but it doesn't mean the same thing, right? But if I, if I do that same thing and put Mussolini in the center, all of a sudden it becomes something transcendental. And what you're saying is this fusion of things goes together. What I'm saying is, is that the, the, the shitty elbow only pasta frame is still important because of the ideas that drive it. And there is a transcendental form that is the mandala with Mussolini in the center that is all, which is maybe more important. But what I'm saying is that the fractal pasta frame is craft. The one with Mussolini in the center is art, irrespective of both those things. And what we're talking about is we, it's good craft is fucking amazing. I spend hours watching artisan craft videos of watching masters of their craft do what they do. And the thing is, I'm saying these two things are separate. They can combine, and when they do, that's magical and it's transcendent. But either one can be transcendent on their own, but they're different things. Right. And your art, for example, just to blow your own trumpet, is both those things c- combined. Oh, thanks. You have skill, skill in painting, and you have ideas that drive it, and you weave it together in a way that when people look at it, is it, it's a transcendent experience. Alex Gray is the same. And I believe that Damien Hirst is a master of art, but not of craft. Interesting. Cause I would, okay. Cause then you get into the, you know, the whole response to modern art is, I guess I just don't get it. So yeah. it's like, at what point, you know, and, and maybe this, maybe this reconnects us to the Fermi paradox, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and the question of like, are we even looking at, like we could be looking at life at something that is alive, but it just doesn't match the search image. So we don't even yeah. recognize it as art. And I'm saying that there is a semiotic gap between Damien Hirst yeah. and most of the people who appreciate him that are not just like, I don't know how else to put this, like Ayn Randian, like I, or Nietzschean, like, the pinnacle of the human being is our ability to impose our, our will upon a meaningless cosmos. Therefore yeah. the greatest, most transcendent art is that which re- reminds me that this art doesn't mean anything and that I am the one that brings my, my conceptual appreciation to it, which is why you're able to sell a, you know, a, a sectioned shark for millions of dollars. And well, so I, I thought that as well, though, right? But the thing Those is... Those people are missing, like, their, their transcendence yeah, is the glass I, ceiling I, that they're just standing under. So I, I went to a James Turrell exhibition. Okay. And he is, like, he's huge on, like, he, he's, he's a modern artist, right? He has whole rooms which are just bathed in one color with a square on the wall that's a different color. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know what? His Gansfeld chamber is four cycloramas so you just look out into infinity and you just experience one color and that's like that's like even more modern art than damien hurst in, in some senses right well but i don't know I, because it because it, it gets at when you're actually getting into the experience and you're focusing attention on its 
itself, sort of. Like you're, because there's the uh, architects of air who do a very similar thing with inflatables, and they t- they tour the world with these inflatable palaces that are all, yeah. you know, they're all like lit through skylight slits, and so you you're in this room and it's all red or all green, and it's in- extraordinary. Also, because you're in this space and the way that they've sort of appropriated the technologies of cathedrals and and temples in order to achieve a sense of transcendence within that very simple space, it really draws your attention to how the human interacts with its environment. So it is actually saying something in a kind of a a secular emphasis on, you know, like on on a sense of like, you know, human neurophysiology and psychology. All these artworks, even Damien Hirst's, are. Like, he's a shark in a chamber, right? He's a shark in a fucking three tanks, and his artwork is called, I I forget what it's called, but I'll paraphrase, the the impossibility of death in the mind of the living is basically it, right? He's got a dead great white shark. So, like, you can can look at this thing and, and, and just be like, it's a shark in a tank, right? But it's what you bring to this exhibit and the reading of the title to understand this apex predator sitting in a fucking art museum while people pay $35 to go and see it, right? Like this, 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 the idea that drives this is transcendental. And if you don't bother to really like sit there and think about it for a second, then you, you're right, man. You don't get art, right? Like you don't get what it is. You can look at a Rembrandt painting and, and, and be blown away. You can look at any Renaissance painting and, and, and inherently see the, this skill it took to create it, but you still don't get art. You're appreciating the craft, not the art. So that if you go into this balloon, right, as you're saying, and you see one color projected, you're bringing your life experience there. It's a different prism through which you view reality. And that's why art is ideas driven. Now, I'm not going to say fucking Damien Hirst is a good craftsperson, but I'll say that like his ideas are driven. And also what's interesting as like a, a, a bit of like another thought, he's incredibly capitalist. He sells his artwork for millions, right? He sells tens, hundreds of millions potentially because he knows how to game the system, which is actually a reflection upon where we are with capitalism now. And that's why his artwork is also interesting. He makes a diamond encrusted skull and sells it for a fortune, way more than the diamonds are worth because he's understood how to play the game. And that in itself, when you witness it, should be, you should look at that thing like a Trojan horse and laugh your fucking ass off at the fact that he was able to sell that for as much as it was because he understands the system so Which well. Which brings us back to Anish Kapoor and Vantablack because, it does. because it does. It this, does. this whole thing right. about, um, you know, like if, if the concept, if the actual art uh, is not mm. the shark, but what he's mm. saying, or even what it as- claims to be ostensibly, mm. which is a meditation on mortality, right? Then yeah. if the true art here is his actually masterful craft of gaming capitalism, then we've got to look at buying the exclusive rights to Vanta Black as a work of art that is actually the, the main work of art that is not anything else that Anish Kapoor is doing with Vanta Black. Yeah. And it gets into this question of like, at what point have we, you know, where is that boundary between a thing being a tool and an instrument of art. Cause in this case, his licensure uh, or their licensure to him is basically right there on the boundary between something between 
the license itself being an artistic medium and something that Kapoor has weaponized against other artists. Well, so, I think I think the the artwork is the pattern, right? Right, and and you said it as well. Like the artwork is the pattern, and the the counter artwork that pushes art forward is the resistance to that. Right? It's everyone knows it's not okay for him to patent this for an artwork, but until an artist patents a color, there's no resistance against it. And what it drives us towards is new forms of IP that say things like that aren't allowed. But the role of artists is to challenge the status quo, to shake it up and to change things. So they, if their artwork is purely based on ideas, their ideas battle and it ends up getting decided and changing legislation. So that the true artwork, and good on Anish Kapoor for fucking doing it, right? Somebody at some point would do something like this. And good on it, like he's a fucking shit artist, right? Like I've been with art, like to be honest, I went to his artworks. I thoroughly enjoyed them for what they were. But like, I much more appreciate his patenting of Vanta Black than I do his artwork. It's provocative, right? Artists have to be subversive. And why not be subversive within the system that exists? Because that provokes other artists to come and then challenge it. So just getting on, mm-hmm. Vanta Pink. I yeah. don't know if it's called that, but that's what I'm... Yeah, it's... This guy, what's the guy's, let's see. I don't know his name, but he's Stuart Semple. Stuart Semple created the world's pinkest pink. And then said, if you are buying this tub of pink pigment, then you must not be Anish Kapoor or working for Anish Kapoor or or going to give this to Anish Kapoor. He is illegally restricted from using it. And then Anish Kapoor got his hands on it somehow. He broke the law in order yeah. to use this thing. So he's, he's playing both sides. Which is good because both artists are battling against each other to destroy a, a, an IP system with respect to art. But that could actually translate into all sorts of different IP systems. But what they've done with art is show how ridiculous it is by battling their ideas against each other. And this is the role of art. This, like, I'm a geneticist, right? This is why I worship bio artists because they are able to push the law just in tiny little bits in ways that scientists can't do without being arrested. But because they're <laughs> artists, they have this certain freedom to be able to, to, to slightly step over the lines and start expanding out what is and isn't allowed by toying in those areas. And the role of the artist is to live on that interface between legal and illegal and, and not just in legislation, but also in ideas, right? To, to start breaking those barriers down and then paving the way for other people to come through and steamroll through it with true changes, right? And, and we have to, and every scientist should actually look at what the artists have done because they have paved the ways, right? So we're getting on in this episode and I think it's like, it'd be wise to sort of like wrap it up. <laughs> I love this and we should we should do another one of these Man, soon. We should, we but, should do it again. But so like we've we've gone we've covered some ground here. We've got the blockchain and, and decentralized technology, we've got genetics and origins of life, we've got the paleoanthropology of human sexuality, we've got uh IP and art and IP as art. And mm. so this is all pointing toward 
something. And I think it's like it's all pointing toward this sort of basic primordial for at least human beings distinction between sedentary and nomadic, between owning and sharing, between we can throw life, non-life in there. And it's like these these categories are, uh, you know, mediated, unmediated. You know, all of these things are shifting right now. And they're pointing towards something. So I feel like you spend more time than most, even most guests of this show, imagining the world in another couple decades. And I'm curious to know where you think all of these trends are converging. Like what... What is the shape yeah. of this world? Like, what do you, where, where do you see this? It's not stabilizing. It's not going to like, maybe, but like, it's changing shape into something. And what is that thing to you? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a biologist and I, I'm looking at systems, right? And what, like my end, I, I have an end goal. Like there is an end goal, which is a technological singularity. And as far as I'm concerned, just now, and like, I've had enough wine to say this, like everything we do now is meaningless. It's playtime until the, the technological singularity. And this, this is a singularity to end all singularities, right? Like, like it's incomprehensible what will happen. And I'm talking like 2030 to 2050, this is going to happen. What we're talking about now, though, is the interesting stuff. And this is our role now is to look at the transitions between these systems, to look at what is an ecosystem, what is something that moves between one established system into a new one, and how does that happen, Right. But, but like once, once we create a, a recursive self-programming, limitless, boundless intelligence, everything ends. And everything that's done before it was playtime. And I feel like that there's a, a snowball that's driving towards that. And we've jumped on at the very f- last few meters or yards if you're in America before uh-huh. that singularity. <laughs> before that singularity happens right Uh nothing we can do stop that it's it's like any one of us any person in the world can step out of their position and that position will be filled because there's a thermodynamic drive of the universe to create this in fact since the first cell started dividing and maybe before we had set in motion a course of events that would catalyze in us creating a god And our goal now is to fuse with the Godhead. That basically our goal now is to make the Godhead accepting of us, force it to accept us, or make us ourselves worthy of it. But the Godhead will be created. Like that that there's there's no question. And it's through our knowing of, of this that we can steer it in a way that we can fuse with it at some point. And if we don't, it will be the next branch of evolution that supersedes us and makes us extinct. Our well, I just, now, I just don't even see that as viable. I mean, as like a viable theory. I think that that whole sort of like uh, us or them, because this is, this is actually how I got in it with Andrew Despy, who introduced us, yeah. you know, because both of us were talking at Rainbow Serpent Festival in Australia about artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. And his whole thing was, you know, I don't see how I can give you any kind of useful advice on, you know, how we stay relevant to evolution. And I was like, that's just, that's just lazy because yeah. bacteria, like you were saying earlier, bacteria are still in charge now. Like multicellular life and complex ecosystems did not relegate them to a position of obsolescence. Yeah. They became 
more diverse, more specious, more relevant than they ever were, more numbered than they ever were. And I think that this impending bifurcation catastrophe that everyone intuits, you know, everyone knows, like, that we're looking at it in terms of wealth stratification and like there being that, you know, the shit or get off the pot moment, like, am I or am I not a cyborg, you know, that kind of stuff that what we're looking at is something that's pretending to call itself one species blowing Mm. up the notion of a single coherent species concept. Like the biological sciences are already ahead of this. Like they already, yeah. Species concept is a totally a social construction based on the yeah. terms that you limit in your in your publication. So it's like, well, for the purposes of this experiment, we're going on phylogenetic species concept or whatever. So that's the attitude that we're going to have to bring towards gender and race and all of these other categories in another Definitely. 50 years. We, 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 you had a great thread on your your page about this, about transgender yeah. and like yeah. and, and how. Yeah how this is, you know, we're at a point where in 50 years, if you're like, well, I'm a unicorn dolphin Eskimo surfer, you know, then it's like, okay, uh, whatever, you know, we'll just have to take yeah. your word for it. Oh, that's what it says on the blockchain. Okay. You know, like it, has, it has to be that way. The thing is though, that we, we are like gods to bacteria, right? Like I can take an antibiotic and kill all the bacteria in my gut. If I choose to go to Mars, I could kill all those bacteria before I go. I could decontaminate my skin and then I can feed myself only the bacteria I choose when I go there to stay alive. So we are like gods to bacteria. We can choose which ones we take along with us and which which we don't, right? And going to Mars is the equivalent of creating a singularity, is that we create an entire new ecosystem that is exclusive of the one that came before it. And I'm saying I want to be the bacterium that gets chosen to go along and not the one that gets left behind because those bacteria will be gods of their Earth, of Earth. But certain bacteria will will go along for the ride. And I'm saying the human race is one species that may go along for the ride, but it's not necessary. And the, the environment in which we create a God isn't dependent upon anything that came before it. So it may not choose to bring things along with it, just as if we could get rid of bacteria, we could choose not to bring them with us. But we can't because we're made out of them. And that's the whole thing. Like the, the eukaryotic cell is a, is a community of bacteria. So like, I don't see how the God mind emerging out of the yeah. internet of things, you know, to take one popular example, uh, you know, one, one speculation. I don't see how that thing is going to like get up and walk away from all of the servers that are making it. And they're, you know, like all of the people that are managing those servers, like it's made, yeah. it's made out of us. That's the William Gibson point. He's like, have, this thing is a coral have, reef made out of people. We have to think like 20 years in the future though, which is like, we are made of atoms ultimately, but they're our bitch, right? So like, <laughs> I'm not saying we won't be the, we're already the bitch of machines. It's yeah, already the like, case. We, we, 20 years is a long time, right? And, and there won't be people managing servers in 20 years. Humans designed the, the algorithms that started machine learning, but like we already don't understand how machines learn. Yeah. Why do they need us? 
Well, we, I mean, a bacteria can't understand why we need it, but we do. That's right. That's right. But it, but it's necessary. And what I'm saying is with machines, they are an entirely new branch of evolution. And the initial conditions of their programming were human, right? But they also weren't programmed with the same rules that we have. Like they don't, their neural networks aren't like our neural networks. They don't have the same base conditions. They're an entirely new, for the first time, branch of life that is outside of what ours. If, but what if, we're, what if we're looking at this wrong? Like to loop it back, your mm. statements earlier on the conditions of a life a living system you know that mm. the conditions of a living system are such that we regard viruses as inhabiting a sort of twilight zone between life and non-life you know that that's as best as, as best they? we can are so are they are they so, because i don't i well, don't recognize i, I mean i i think of them as alive right because they're yeah like they're the, the the conditions of dependency are really for a virus are not all that different from the conditions of dependency of a human being. You know, like we all rely on that said crystal growth of the innately mineral essence of, you know, what Kevin Kelly calls the technium, you know, the sum of all technology is not, I don't see it so much as the seventh kingdom. Like I see it as an organ in the seventh kingdom. And I think the actual technium includes all of the people and that much like, John Allen, the inventor of Biosphere 2, kind of said that the actual, the new kingdom actually starts at human beings. And it, it's, it includes human beings and technology as the new organism. And so yeah. we're, we're missing something. If we think we're going to be left behind by this, that's not accurate. Like it's, it's not accurate because what we're actually looking at is the new, the new organism is a composite organic and inorganic organism it's a cyborg that's from a the very, start very optimistic romantic view of how we think godlike ai will think of us right because we're the creators so we, we think that the rules are the same and like we want to hope that we will be recognized by this thing as a creator um or rather that it's not even separate from us. It's not like that we're not even, we're not creating it because this is not a, a condition of informed consent. Yeah. Like we don't know what yeah. the hell we're doing. That ship has sailed. Yeah. I think the thing is though that like with the AI, the rules are, the rules are so different. You know, it, it will go from having the consciousness of an ant potentially to the consciousness surpassing a human being in 24 hours. And with that rate of development, it may not witness us as creators the same way that we think it will it should witness us as create as creators so like we we have this like you know technological masturbation of of wanting a future like the culture from ian and banks's novels you know where humans and te- technology are hope uh, hopelessly intertwined that they, they are far superior in mental capacity and computing time but they have this like soft spot for the human race and I'm saying, like, that's definitely one outcome, and it's the best outcome that can happen. But what I'm saying is the reality of the situation may be starkly different, which may be that it's, it surpasses us and grows so quickly, it thinks of us like we think of a microbe, but the difference is we need microbes to continue surviving, and it doesn't need the human race necessarily once it reaches that point because maybe automation has gotten to a point that it controls everything that sustains it and it could wipe out humans 
and be godlike and have no need for human race to be around at all. All the archives we've ever ever made, every piece of data that's ever been recorded, it will have access to. And, and that's why I'm saying it is, it is different than the system that we're looking at. And our role now is to ensure that won't happen by guiding it in the right direction. Hmm. But, you know, fuck, like, who knows what will happen? We're talking like 20 years in the future. Who can fucking, I can't even predict this year because if I did, I would have fucking invested in Bitcoin in March, right? You know, <laughs> like, like fucking, I can't even predict. Like we're talking, we're talking like te- people think technology is linear and it's not, it's exponential, you know? Like 2007, we had the first iPhone. Now iPhones are almost obsolete as they roll off the factory line. The iPhone 8, S has come out. The iPhone 8S Plus has come out. The iPhone 9 comes out. And these iteration cycles get smaller and smaller. And we lie to ourselves and say that we won't become obsolete, just like that iPhone that was the greatest technological advancement we've ever had. But when we look at history, that's not the case. And what I'm saying is that are iPhones always going to be relevant? Well, we can make them always relevant. You know, you can still have an iPhone now if you make it relevant. But we have to convince this thing that we are relevant all the way through. And that's like, that's how I see the future. So really, it's it's just a question of how well we engineer our systems, including our own psychologies, to absorb and adapt to change. Like, how receptive are you to the upgrades? Because if, if we're yes. looking at if we're looking at the cycle of change as getting faster and faster, we and we're already at that point now where the iterative cycle of normal sexual reproduction type eukaryotic evolution, yeah. that window, which Kevin Kelly argues, you know, Moore's law extends all the way through the metabolism thing. That it's right. a, it's a it's a it's an entropy thing. It's not a chip design thing. And that we're looking at Moore's law extends all the way back to the origin of life and to the beginning of the universe and all this stuff. That, Great. So Great. in in light of that, that the evolutionary turnover rate now is faster than the human reproductive cycle, meaning that you within your lifetime will or at least will have the opportunity to evolve into a new species of organism. Right. Definitely. I think this, so, this, is where the fusion come, this is where the fusion comes in, right? Which is about how fast you evolve. Now, bacterial polymerases, the things that copy the DNA, are more error-prone than human polymerases. And this means they evolve faster, which is why microbes still dominate the Earth. But as things get more complex, they can afford less errors because they're more complex. So there's a battle going on between adaptability and evolvability, and you get all sorts of new systems come out. We can kill all microbes because we have less adaptability, right? So we can, our, our the polymerases, the enzymes that, that copy our DNA are more accurate which means we can kill all microbes within ourselves because we can develop into multicellular organisms that can kill everything in there. But then you die. Um, if you take antibiotics, you don't die, right? If you kill all microbes forever, you die. But you actually can control their evolution. So no matter right. how 
even with their highly adaptable enzymes, they're still not fast enough to be able to kill most antibiotics. So the so, thing that, again, like the thing that we're creating that's more complex than we are is mm. going to be, in, like you're saying, in some respects more conservative and therefore more slowly evolving or like, like we're going to, I think, again, I think we're getting into this issue. It's like, no, we, we agree that, you know, godlike artificial intelligence could just decide to like nuke an entire continent the same way that we yeah. waste our intestinal tract with antibiotics. We're just like, nope. But that's not really an existential risk to the entire human species because it's whatever we're talking about, no matter how transcendent it is, it's thinking and responding on a different time, like inertial reference. Yeah. And I think that this is sort of the point uh, of all of this chewing on this archetype that we've done with all of these science fiction movies lately, where it's like human beings team up to outsmart Godzilla. And then, you know, at the end of Shin Gojira, you see the tale of the frozen statue of Godzilla. Have you seen that film? No, I haven't seen it. it they, like, they, they, I'm, is it okay for me to ruin this for you? Yeah. At the very end, they freeze Godzilla, like down to the the atomic level. Like they find this coagulant and they, they fill Godzilla with this coagulant. Godzilla freezes in place as this giant statue and a reminder of the disaster in Tokyo. And yeah. the very tale of the of this Godzilla statue frozen in place, because Godzilla has been evolving through this whole film. It's constantly taking on new forms. And the last shot of the film is the tale of Godzilla turning into people. Like that Godzilla oh. was responding to the collaboration of human beings, mm -hmm. which was like out competing it by itself decentralizing by moving mm -hmm. from a single dinosaur thing yeah. into a swarm intelligence of mini Godzillas. They're like little human so, beings. So with, with this analogy, with AI, we have to recognize that, that the ecosystem has changed, right? That there is, there is an in silico ecosystem that exists on its own complete at some point, not now, but in the next 20 years will be completely separate to the biosphere. And this, this is why it's, it's a game changer is that it's evolvability changes. It's time steps changes. So computers calculate in like, you know, milliseconds, microseconds, nanoseconds, and humans by nature of biology can't. Biology is slow. Because of this, you actually split that sphere into multiple different spheres. So bacteria and humans are in this same ecosphere. The AI exists in a different ecosphere that makes the previous one before it redundant. So it can decentralize or it can centralize with no consequence to the ecosystem it came from. Now, while we're spoiling shit, I'm going to like spoil some serious <laughs> shit. There's a book by Greg Egan called Terranesia. Oh, I love that I read book. Through, I read through fucking like hundreds of pages of what I essentially classify garbage. It was always all right. It was a good like mystery, but it was about it's 200 pages. It's the weakest Greg Egan book I've ever read. Yeah, I've read some weak Greg Egan books. <laughs> like, I mean, one, I it's it, it doesn't hold up to something like Diaspora or Quarantine or... I'm reading Diaspora right now, and I just read Quarantine. You ruined Diaspora, I'll fucking smack you down. No, no, um, we're good. So no, no, no. Terranesia is a throwaway book, but the, the, the kind of the, the thesis of this book was, what if you could make a polymerase that was 
quantumly entangled with every world that could exist. So you pick the best mutation that could ever happen. So you have the ultimate evolvability. And, and all these organisms tended towards, so every bird tended towards one bird, the perfect bird from every universe that could possibly exist. Every butterfly tended towards the most perfect butterfly. And basically, like, reduced diversity. I was like, that's a flimsy and, pretext because we know that, that evolution actually favors diversity. But go on. It does. But, but quantum evolution might not, right? Which, is, which was the kind of hypothesis that he came up with which is that if you could pick from every possible universe, you could create the perfect of each type of thing. Now, this actually ties back to that paleontological talk before, which was that there's kind of those two phases of evolution, right? There's diversity of types and there's diversity within types. And we see this all the way throughout the fossil record. So you, you get like mass extinction events and this reduces the number of things, then from those things, you get many diverse attempts at trying to colonize a new environment. So say, for example, you're a trilobite and they have to wipe out almost, what's that? I said Fuck shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a, a trilobite left. You get heaps of inbreeding. You get heaps of different trials at all these different ways of solving a problem. And you get, you get diversity. So you get one trilobite, have many different types of trilobites that are different species. And then you get these different attempts, which are like different types of things, diversify to specialize within different niches. But the Cambrian explosion is a, a perfect example of this, right? You've got this huge explosion of a few different core ideas. So you have like core data, a backbone. You have like um, an, a, a ball organism that can like diversify into all different types of things. And, and then you get within that, then you get speciation. So you get different species evolve out of that. Then you get speciation to try and fill every available niche. So you've got a backbone. Okay, what ecological niches can you get a backbone form into? You get like fucking, oh, I'm going to like hang out down the bottom. I'm going to like parasitize that. I'm going to like go into a fucking cave and, and, and see what I can exploit there. And then you get speciation. It's like, I'm going to go to a dark corner of a cave. I'm going to go to a light corner of a cave. And that's where you see the speciation. But you see different types of punctuation. So... There's two distinct ones there. There's like, there's like, I'm going to try and exploit every niche. And then the other one is, I'm going to exploit every niche as perfectly as possible. In Darwin's finches, we see this as the speciation. Mm. It's like one type of bird hit a whole heap of different things. And then the food sources were limited. So it, it tended itself towards exploiting the food sources by changing the beak. But before that, there was another speciation event, which was like, I'm going to create birds that can fly to different islands. Mm. And, and that, that's the genera, kind of the genus level modification. And, and even, even above that, it's like even splitting into families, like, fuck, we're all dead. We need to survive. So how are we going to do it? We're going to change. And we do that through inbreeding. And then we, we send things out fucking everywhere. Right. That forking, that forking. And it's like we, we put the cladists have already kind of moved beyond this, that like the Linnaean seven layer system of classification yeah. at this point now, like, when you go into like a genetic analysis, you know this, like when at some point when I was in college, it swapped over to where the genetic analysis was creating trees with so many forks in them that you couldn't just put, well, these two are at the same level. It's like, no, those are more related yeah. and less related. So we're yeah. looking at something that's actually fractal, like a lightning bolt, and it doesn't have these clear gradations. But the, I guess the whole point, though, with all of that is that you do see 
the forking occurring everywhere that speciation or specialization mm-hmm. outcompetes competing for the same resources like anywhere that you're you're able to say okay i'm going to just grow a bigger beak and you grow a tinier beak and we'll specialize in two different mm-hmm. kinds of seeds like the body the body is close enough that it can make that move and so Definitely. you get and so it's it really is a, it is a i'm this is the the third uh essay in the or the third piece of the essay that i've been writing about surveillance evolution the cambrian explosion google glass and nukes which is like, yeah, it's like, so it's like weird. We're having like a mirror of the, the whole conversation right now, but we've got this tree of different surveillance technologies that recapitulate the, the tree of every living system striving to find its own little like basic income. And at the same time, we have this like web of life, right? Like we think of a tree of life. It's like, it extends, it branches, it branches, it branches, it branches until we have all the species on earth. But it's actually a web. There's a feedback loop, right? Like there's genes going fucking everywhere. And that's why I say inbreeding is a big part of this, right? Which is the web of life, which is the recombining of trees as they go along to create trees with more diversity. So you, you branch out and then you branch in. And then the branch from that is more diverse than either of them could have been on their own. So, like, we, we used to think of this, like, and you'll see it. You'll see this beautiful RNA tree of life. There's no crosses. There's no cross links between any of it. You show that to any microbial geneticist and they'll fucking shoot you because they know that it's a clusterfuck. It's a polyamory all the way through. It's the RNA tree of life reestablishing itself continuously, right, which is that if you have a bacterium that gets killed inside your body, and it has an antibiotic resistance gene, it shares that with every other microbe, even though it died, because cells natively take up DNA. So we see this remixing and sharing of genetic information all the way through, and we like to think that it's not the case. We like to think we're this pure homo sapiens sapiens that evolved perfectly, but our fucking genome is a litter of viral DNA that has been carried from other things. I'm writing, I'm writing a speech on bioweapons at the moment, and we have Ebola through our genome. We have influenza throughout our genome, and that didn't necessarily come from influenza. Those genes have been remixed from birds, pigs. Like We're talking like things way down the evolutionary tree. Like Birds are basically reptiles, and we have remixes of their genes in our genome. So it's this, it's this web of genetic information that is shared and willingly – or unwillingly, or so I should, I should say, consensually or unconsensually added to our being. This provides a fertile breeding ground for new genes that may be reshared back with those organisms. We can give livestock like birds and placental mammals like cows our viruses, and this is a way for the DNA to remix itself. So we, we think it's this tree, but it's, it's just endlessly remixing backwards and forwards. We see things like plants and aphids exchanging genetic information so it's not this beautiful tree it's it's a beautiful right. remix and and there is no such thing as ip to bring it back to that like, <laughs> information wants to be free right there's plenty of examples where it's not but it will always be that way and and systems will even if it's two thousand four thousand ten thousand years information will always lend lend itself to systems where the information is free and polyamory is a version of that. 
And so it's almost everything we've ever talked about. And the reason that banks like blockchain is because the information is free. It's not hidden behind closed walls. We're sharing a public ledger, even though everyone on it is pseudonymous. You can't say that transaction was Michael Garfield, that transaction was Meow Ludo, Meow Meow. It's like there is an alias associated with this, but it's a more free way of moving the data. And the systems always tend towards the system that shares the information. Hmm. Well, dude, we didn't, we didn't even get to bioweapons, but I think we need to have another one of these. Since you are a system that tends towards information freeness, why don't you share with us where people can link up with you and find more about your work? The easiest way is to add me on Facebook. Um, meow Ludo Meow Meow is the easiest way to find me. You can go to my website, uh, foundry.bio, uh, foundry.bio. Foundry.bio is my my baby. So BioFoundry is Australia's first open access molecular biology lab. It is pretty fucking amazing. We're doing great things. And uh, I think that's probably the, the best ways of finding me. Hit me up any way you can find me. I'm actually starting up my Patreon account. So if you go if you go to a website, um, sorry, a Facebook group, Biohacksid. It's always all one word: B I O H A C K S Y D. It's the biggest biohacking group I know of uh, in the world for the specific molecular biology thing we do. Um, that's where a lot of our discussion happens. Um, if you if you join that group, you can follow what we're doing. We are about to launch a patreon campaign um where i'm going to do some videos uh, instructing people on how to hack molecular biology and microbes eventually we'll Mm. we'll go into hacking the human body and and those types of things but that's like maybe a year away give it to me now (laughs) fuck man there's so much to cover so at the moment i'm writing what will become a book in how do you go from being a person that's interested in molecular biology to a fully-fledged biohacker that has the, the skills and tool set to be able to attack the problems you want to solve. Mm, awesome, dude. Well, I'm glad we did this. And I'm, so I'm glad the world is populated with people like you who are out there working as transmedia artists the uh, substance of our provoked expectations. I am so keen to get more of you in my lab and meet with you online because this is, this is what drives me. I'm most excited to meet people that aren't molecular biologists because I feel like those people have the most to contribute to my discipline. Agreed. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.